Our speaker today is Michael Berenbaum. The topic is the new anti-Semitism. We're going to have a 45-minute presentation followed by 15 minutes of Q&A. Uh, Michael is, the, is one of the world's leading Holocaust scholars, and he's a master of diverse fields of Jewish knowledge and culture. His teachings challenge Jews not to accept ourselves as powerless victims, but as empowered and equipped to confront our adversaries. He is the director of the Siggy Ziering Institute, exploring the ethical and religious implications of the Holocaust and, and a professor of Jewish studies at, at the American Jewish University. He's the author and editor of 20 books. He was also the executive editor of the second edition of the Encyclopedia Judaica. He was project director overseeing the creation of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum um, in Washington, D.C., and the first director of its research institute, and later served as president and CEO of the survivors of the Shoah Visual History Foundation which took testimony of 52,000 Holocaust survivors in 32 languages in 57 countries. His work in film has won Emmy Awards and Academy Awards. We are very happy that you made the drive down from LA today to be with us. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming, and uh, I hope you enjoy the program. First of all, good afternoon. Secondly, to the woman who's just moved from Maryland, we were at the uh, Nationals um, uh, Dodgers game on Sunday. It was 110 degrees with 90 degrees humidity. My son, who's a California, my youngest son, who's a California kid, said that he's never sweated this much uh, and he bought water not to drink but just to pour. <laughs> No, I lived. I lived in. I lived in Washington for 20 years, so the lack of humidity is wonderful. Look, um, we're going to have a serious discussion today. Uh, let me begin with a, um, an observation. There was a man in Jewish life by the name of Milton Himmelfarb, of blessed memory, who was a great quipster. Now, quipster means that you can summarize an awful lot of information in a sentence. Milton Himmelfarb's observation of Jewish voting patterns, uh, which has been true for the better part of three quarters of a century, was that Jews live like Episcopalians, they vote like Puerto Ricans. <laughs> and, and that was a period of time when Puerto Ricans voted like Puerto Ricans. <laughs> But it summarized an awful lot, namely what he meant to say was that our voting patterns did not change with our economic status. With regard to anti-Semitism, he said the following. He said, the easiest way to get booed by a Jewish audience is to tell them that anti-Semitism is not as severe a problem as they think it is. Now, I'm not going to tell you it's not as severe a problem as you think it is, but I'm going to tell you it's a different problem than you think it is. And what I want to do is I want to take you on a tour of the horizon, a tour of the horizon of Jewish life, give you the basic points of anti-Semitism, talk about what we're experiencing in the United States, in Europe, and in the Muslim world, and then leave it open to lots and lots of questions. Let me begin with something you're seldom going to hear. And let me introduce a sociological term which is called microtrends. Microtrends also deals with the same phenomena as micromarketing. Some of us are old enough to remember when there was only Coke. 
and some of us old enough to remember when there was Coke and Tab, and some of us now understand that there is Coke and Diet Coke, there is Coke Zero, there is Coke Lemon, Coke Lime, caffeine-free, non-caffeine-free, Coke Cherry, Coke Vanilla, Diet Coke Cherry, Diet Coke Vanilla, meaning the following, that with, that, with the absence of one brand, you now have in the same range of space and products, you now have uh, about 25 brands, which are micro-trends. Now I'm gonna give you a piece of bizarre information, which is the following, that if you look at all the demographic surveys, Judaism is the most popular religion in America, by which I mean the least unpopular religion in America. Let me prove the case in 30 seconds, but to take you through it so you understand it. Roman Catholic world, and let's presume for a moment prior to the appearance of this extraordinarily interesting pope, uh, who is shaking up the Roman Catholic hierarchy in ways that you cannot imagine. I had lunch last week at Georgetown University in the Jesuit community. This is Jesuit Pope and they are reveling in what he is doing. Finally, one of theirs has come to the fore, and he's shaking up the entire hierarchy. He's shaking up conservative uh, elements in the world. He's doing lots of things. But Roman Catholicism has been up till now severely divided, but also severely um, con uh, contaminated. Namely, its hierarchy and institutional establishment has been contaminated by several phenomenon. The first is the sexual molestation cases and the cover-up, which has destroyed faith in these men, and I'm using men specifically who run the institution. The second is an interesting phenomenon, which is that the, there is no less divorce within the Catholic community no less use of contraception and no less resorting to abortion within the Roman Catholic community than within the general population. Consequently, you have a phenomenon not unknown to Jews, which is priests preach one thing and the congregation does another. It doesn't happen in Judaism. <laughs> but um, so you have that phenomenon. You also had a tremendous division between the conservative Catholics and the liberal Catholics, between the Dorothy Day Catholics who use it as social activism and the people who are the Catholic League Catholics. So Catholicism is divided. Protestantism is clearly divided between evangelicals and the liberals who detest each other. And who though they share technically the same religion have a totally different reading of that religion Everybody detests the Muslims, and consequently, ironically, the Jews are the least unpopular and consequently the most popular of all the religions in America. And we also have a phenomenon which is that with, it's not necessarily a good phenomenon, with the massive intermarriage rate, there is a greater knowledge of Jews within the community, and we see some phenomenon of that, for example, with the non-Jews who go on J-date because seemingly they want a Jewish partner, and that means that. So 
Now, if I ask American Jewish community, is anti-Semitism on the rise in America or is it on the decline? Almost all of you would answer it's on the rise. Now, why is there this tremendous gap, tremendous gap, between our perceptions and the empirical reality? And part of the reason for that has to do with the fact that if you hate today, you have less constraints on your hatred, you have more outlets for your hatred, and you have the greater capacity to find fellow haters in a community and in a coherent way. And consequently, there is a greater expression of hatred today in which hatred of the Jews is one manifestation of that hatred. And we see it all sorts of ways. We're even seeing a little bit of this in the Republican primary with the Donald Trump phenomenon, which is that there's an overture. We've seen it in the ways in which people have responded um, to the president of the United States and uh, the color of his skin and an explosion of racism. If you hate, you can find a modality for the expression of the hatred and the internet and all of the social media just expands it and broadcasts it and gives it a microphone of enormous proportion. What is the one issue that is going to be problematic? We have BDS. And we're going to talk a little bit later about Zionism and anti-Zionism and that, but I want to take you through America. BDS is a manifestation, first of all, in one sense, it's not quite serious. Why is it not quite serious? Because if you want to boycott Israel seriously, you have to give up your iPhones. You have to give up Intel chips. You have to give up Apple products. You have to give up your cell phone. You have to give up Microsoft, and the universities of America would be crippled and would be absolutely crippled with that, plus the range of techniques that you have in medicine and medical technology would cripple the hospitals, the range of vaccinations, and the participation of it. So it's a fringe phenomenon. But it is exploring the following, which is that there is a gap between Israel and the left community. And Israel has exacerbated that gap by not particularly paying attention to it. Uh, and also the left has become peculiarly and, um, and um, <laughs> inconsistently anti-Israel in a way that it doesn't make sense. For example, um, there are many offending countries on the range of skills for which Israel is being blamed. Israel may be the least of them. And for example, when you see the gay community at UCLA come out in solidarity with BDS, and you ask yourself, what is gay life in Tel Aviv like as opposed into any Arab country? you see that there is a combination of misinformation and essentially the idea that Israel has now gotten the reputation as an illiberal society. And it is, have, may have an illiberal government, but it's certainly not an illiberal society. And that is a flag issue. 
But if I were to take out an ad against BDS, first of all, I wouldn't have Sheldon Adelson sponsor it because the issue is a left issue. The left has to fight it. And secondly, I would say, let's be consistent. And I would go through a whole range of products and call on the university to give up all these range of products, call on the students to give up all these range of products, and take an ad out which goes all the way through all the products that they have to give up. Let's put America on the side for a moment. Let's go to Europe. I want to make a distinction in Europe between a very basic language, anti-Semitism of and anti-Semitism in. Let me repeat it because it's, a, it's an important distinction. Anti-Semitism of and anti-Semitism in. There is a significant increase of anti-Semitism in European countries there is a diminishment of anti-Semitism of European countries. Now, now that I've confused you, let me see if I can make it clear for you. There are a whole range of people in European countries, and let's take France as an example, but I can go through the whole range, but France is the clearest example. They have a Muslim population that is living in France but is not of France. Living in France means that it responds not to events in French society, but to events elsewhere. And if you look at when the increase of anti-Semitism took place and anti-Jewish action took place in France, it's correlated precisely not with events in France, but with events in the Middle East. And it was fueled by one element in France, which we'll get to in a moment. But if you are of France, if you accept liberty, equality, and fraternity, then you regard Jews and Muslims, Catholics, and ardent secularists as part and parcel of French society. And the government has recently, most especially in response to what happened at Super Kasher, made the statement, in essence, that the Jew, France without the Jews is not France and made the strong statement, the very strong statement, that the attack on the Jews was an attack on France, and France are an integrated part of that society. What was fueling this in part was the fact of the non-integration, non-assimilation of the Muslim population in France, which has not become a Muslim population of France, fueled by a second element, which is that France did not have a recognition of a hate crime. And I want you to understand this very well. If, God forbid, somebody drew a swastika on this synagogue building, I can guarantee you what would happen next. Number one, the mayor would be here in a moment and say there's no place for hatred in this community. District attorney would say we will use every instrument of the law to prosecute the people who have done this heinous crime. Police chief will say every resource imaginable will be used to catch these criminals. And a priest, a, uh, probably a bishop, a pastor, and perhaps even an imam would join the rabbi in a symbolic cleansing of that swastika. And what would happen is the non-hatred elements of society would coalesce 
to isolate, stigmatize, prosecute, apprehend, deal with the hatred in our midst, and you would have an expression of solidarity, there would be contributions, etc., etc., taking place. That's because we recognize it as a hate crime, which is an attack on the civility of our society, and consequently we respond accordingly. Up until recently, France, and I go by extension the rest of Europe as well, did not have the notion of hate crimes, so graffiti was regarded the same way as we regard graffiti on the highway, which is a minor crime. An assault against a rabbi walking to synagogue would be the, somebody who roughs up a rabbi walking to synagogue would be somebody who beats up somebody. They would pay attention only when it got to the point of murder, and they would treat it as an ordinary crime of murder not as something with a political hate agenda that threatens the totality of society. That is beginning to change. And what essentially you had in France in a very deep way was that attacks, criticism of the state of Israel was regarded as licensed to attack the Jew next door. Criticism of the state of Israel was licensed to attack the Jew next door. And consequently, it became fuel to the fire. And what you had was that type of expression. Now, that's the structural news. The bad news is that each of these European societies has a significant Muslim population, a significant Muslim population that is not finding its place in the society. And they all now have the capacity for homegrown terrorism. And homegrown terrorism and homegrown um, uh, 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 people who are alienated, they take an extreme manifestation by going for ISIS or going to fight for Al-Qaeda. They take a less extreme manifestation when they begin, and not, not necessarily an easier one, when they begin to attack at home, and that becomes much more difficult to identify. That, by the way, has implications for our immigration policy, which is that if you regard a guest worker program of people who are going to be permanently alien to this society, that's very different than the American policy for generations that impacted our families as they came to America of bringing them in, having them acculturate, having them participate, having them, and there were no more patriotic group of people than both the first generation and the second generation. My grandparents would not tolerate any word against America. For them, America was a haven. It was a place that offered freedom. It was a place that offered opportunity, and they were certain that they were better off having left Europe in the 1910s and 1920s, certainly after the Holocaust, and God forbid, had they stayed. But patriotic and a sense of, of that, and they were Orthodox Jews. They weren't assimilating into this society in, in, in other manners, not in appearance, uh, barely in language, but boy, did they love America, and boy, did they vote because that for them became a rare and extraordinary privilege. What's the largest phenomenon? The largest phenomenon is that everything that has been discredited in Europe has been adopted in the Muslim world. 
In other words, l let's take a couple of elements to explain this for a moment. You've all heard of the blood libel. The blood libel was the idea that we slaughter innocent children, innocent boys to make the Passover matzah. Now that makes, uh, I want you to understand, that makes theological sense within Christianity where the primary element of the Christian mass is the Eucharist and the primary act is with the miracle of transubstantiation is that you drink the wine, you say, this is my blood. You eat the wafer, you say, this is my body. Which means that essentially consuming the blood of the innocent and the body of the innocent becomes essential to salvation and essential to the ritual of spring. When does that occur? That occurs on Easter. And therefore, it is within the realm of the imagination that somebody else would slaughter the innocent in order to bring about the renewal that is expected and that is needed and that is dramatized by spring. It makes theological sense if you have the Eucharist as the center part of your ritual makes no sense in Islam, which has no sense of blood. And no sense there, but it migrated from Christianity to Islam. The 1840 Damascus blood libel was brought by a Roman Catholic priest. And the more discredited it became in the, the more discredited it became in the, um, in the West, the more it became adopted in the Muslim world. Second example is the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Now, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is a book that everybody's heard of, and I would bet that virtually no one here has ever read. Everybody's heard of, but nobody's read. One of the reasons you don't read it is because it's boring. I read it because I'm, 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 you know, I have to read it but it's a wonderful thing, puts me to sleep. And the idea of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is that Jews control the world. Now, that in Egypt, and this was an Egypt that lived at peace with Israel, quotation marks, a cold peace. This is Egypt of the, night, uh, of the early 1990s, the 2000s and like. It became a 41-part television series. Now, many more people see television than read books. And the manifestation of the Protocols of the Elder Zion is the idea that Jews control society and that there is a group of elders who meet to control and that helps explain it has a certain resonance because one cannot imagine how Israel, this Fashtunkan, a little country with very few resources, has become an international player in technology and science and information, has the economic performance of the gross um, uh, per capita of Switzerland, and is living off the life of the mind when the Arab countries, which have dramatic resources, are now finding the younger generation is floundering and not prospering and there's a bifurcation. 
So that's not to say that the Protocols of Elders of Zion is right. It's to say it gives an explanation, a plausibility structure to understand why one society is progressing and doing extraordinarily well, another society is doing um, uh, disintegrating. Now, I want you to keep in mind, and this is a, a very important piece of good news. I see by the age of all of us in this room, with a couple of exceptions, that we all remember 1973. The assumption in 1973 and the dread that came hold of the Jewish community was that power in the last third of the last quarter of the 20th century would be in the control of natural resources. What have we discovered? We've discovered that power in the last third of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century has been not in the control of natural resources, but in the ability to get your hands on information. The great fortunes that have been made are the fortunes that have been made literally by being able to get control of information, to be able to use information. What does Michael Bloomberg put on your desk? He puts on your desk all sorts of public information in a usable form in a terminal. What does Google do, which makes it such a powerful company? It, it gets you access to everything that's out there, and it allows you to participate in that. Facebook gives you social interaction. Microsoft unleashes the power of the computer. That's what makes Bill Gates, what, the richest man in the world. And what you have essentially is that power has become manifest in the ability to get your, yourself on top of in control of information. And in this range, Jews have become quasi-superpowers because we have always been involved in education and what looked like was going to saddle Israel with tens of thousands of engineers and musicians, meaning the migration of Soviet Jewry has unleashed a new stream of the ability to, once you free that creativity, look what it has created, look at the various apps that have been created, look at the various quotation marks, startup nation, etc. So the Muslim world essentially has begun to take hold of the anti-Semitic myths. And Islam is the only language, ironically, uh, Arabic is the only language, ironically, in which a refutation to the protocols of the elders of Zion does not appear. They have taken control of that, these myths discredited by the West, and rejuvenated them within Muslim society. That's the bad news, that's the structural news, that's the tour of the horizon. Let's look at a couple of more issues that I want to throw out. The history of Zionism was that Zionism was born to solve the problem of anti-Semitism. You all know the basic elements. Theodor Herzl came, with a came as an assimilated Jew who saw that in France, 100 years after the preaching of liberty, equality, and fraternity, 100 years after the French Revolution, they were chanting in the streets, death to the Jews. 
and that Alfred Dreyfus, even when he was known to be innocent, could only get a pardon, he could not get exoneration, and that the Jews were not going to be socially acceptable. He came up with a rational plan. The rational plan was the Jews would become a nation like every other nation. They would have a state, an army, and a flag, and that would solve the problem of anti-Semitism. They would become the Switzerland of the Middle East, um, boring, uninteresting, safe, secure, and normal. What have we discovered? We have discovered the following, that for a long period of time, Israel could quench the flames of anti-Semitism, but Israel can also flame the fires, fuel the fires of anti-Semitism. Now, Anatoly Sharansky, Natan Sharansky, gave us a brilliant code word by which to understand what is the difference between legitimate criticism of the State of Israel and anti-Semitism. You have to remember D, the letter D. Three Ds. Delegitimation, double standards, demonization. Double standard means you judge the entire world by one set of standards, you judge Israel by another set of standards. If you do that, then you're moving between legitimate criticism of the State of Israel and anti-Semitism. If, for example, the British bombing of Dresden was a legitimate military tactic, but the Israeli bombing of Gaza was not, then you're using two different standards. If the United States can accept collateral damage when we bomb in Iraq and take thousands of lives by our bombing of Iraq, even when we use what drones, but that's fully legitimate as a military tactic, then what about when Israel bombs? You have to have, if you use different standards, and by the way, I would even say a little bit differently than Sharansky, Jews have the right to hold each other to higher standards. That's what rabbis preach, that's what we expect of each other, etc. But double standards walks the boundary line between legitimate criticism and anti-Semitism. Delegitimation comes into the thing, Israel has some things it does wrong. Significant things it does wrong. Does that mean it doesn't have a right to exist? If Israel displaced Palestinians, American, America displaced Native Americans. Canadians displaced their native population, or Australians displaced Aborigines. Uh, if, if you move from that statement to you have no right to exist, then the question becomes, you're moving into a range of anti-Semitism. And the third is demonization, which is to regard, and this is becoming having a credibility crisis in parts of the world today, which is that Israel is not to blame for everything. Let's take a couple of very interesting examples. Nobody blamed Israel for the disappearance of the Malaysian airline. <laughs> I scoured the internet. <laughs> I scoured the internet. Nobody blamed Israel for the disappearance of the Malaysian airline. A first. <laughs> Let's take a second example. 
William Crystal said that the division between, um, I'm going to say something that's a little bit political, but I'll get away with it a little bit. We have a terrible problem in the world today, which is that people, there are no consequences for being wrong, there are real consequences for being right. So Bill Crystal, uh, William Crystal had this wonderful thing. He said, the division between Sunni and Shiite is pop sociology. That was 12 years ago. Pop sociology, it's a battle that is taking place throughout the Middle East. It's central to the Iran situation. It's a struggle, has nothing to do with Israel. Has everything to do between two different narratives and between two different tribalisms. And everything ironically to do with the division of the map that was set up by Britain uh, by, by, by Britain and by the, the Ottoman Empire as you had the transition thing, but literally nothing to do with Israel. But if you regard Israel as a source of all evil in the world, then you're moving over to the boundary line between anti-Semitism cloaked as anti-Zionism. That does not mean that there are not legitimate criticisms to be made of the state of Israel. I can make them, you can make them, uh, certainly a whole range of things. When they say reformed Jews are not Jews, that's a little bit um, offensive, probably a little bit more than a little bit offensive when you, for example, um, uh, have, you know, uh, the government pressure for the cancellation of bar mitzvahs of autistic kids because it's going to occur in a conservative synagogue, that's deeply offensive. I mean, a whole range of things, we can look at it every day, and there are ranges of criticisms that are to be done. That's very different than morphing into and moving into anti-Semitism, and we can't cloak every legitimate criticism of the state of Israel into the range of anti-Semitism. But we have to say that when do we look, when does it look suspicious? When does it look dramatic? When does it look significant? When you have double standards, delegitimation, and demonization. And that's a pretty good identifying marker of the whole thing. Let's now summarize in one sense or another. The problem of hatred is a general problem. The manifestation of hatred means that you can have communities of haters now which does not facilitate their marginalization and does not allow for their isola isolation. The idea before was that you could quarantine it, you could limit it, you could push it aside. That puts an obligation, by the way, on the good people to speak up and to speak out and to really come forth. A wonderful example of that was what happened in England, which had almost a repeat last uh, two weeks ago, uh, almost a literal repeat of what was the Skokie March. You're going to have a march on, on the intensely Jewish neighborhood of London by Nazi skinheads who are going to come in and burn the synagogues down and the like. 
They were legally forced to march elsewhere, and then they were overwhelmed by the number of good people who marched instead. You had in the response to Super Kasher and to, uh, to the uh, attack on the cartoonists, you had an unprecedented sense of solidarity by all the leaders of Europe marching against anti-Semitism, marching against the type of censorship that would have, that would have uh, and the type of violence that would have been a response. You have the leaders of France saying essentially the Jews of France are ours. By the way, the Israelis mishandled that because in essence, if the French prime minister and the French president says they're ours, then they should have been buried in France, not in Israel. They should have been buried on the soil of their quotation marks land, and it was a clash between classical Zionism and a certain reality, and also, that's not a moment when you appeal, come to Israel and be safe, but remember we're about to face an Iranian bomb. You can't have both. And if you're going to say on the one hand you're going to face an Iranian bomb, then what type of safety are you offering Israel? Are you offering in Israel? And the other thing I, I will say, which is also um, part of it, is let's not exaggerate the scope of anti-Semitism. And I'm going to say something that some of you are going to find offense, offensive, but um, real. More Jews have been killed for being Jews per capita in Israel than in any country in the world for the last 15 years. And that is that with the range of terror and the like that has taken place, and I don't say that proudly, I say that descriptively, but you can on the one hand say, come here, we'll offer you safety. On the other hand, what you have is you have a sense of vulnerability. What's a little bit of the good news? And just a little bit of the good news. First, Israel now has a strategic alliance with Jordan, Egypt in the post-Muslim Brotherhood era, and with Saudi Arabia. You also have, for the first time in recent memory, in Egypt a TV program that's become enormously popular, which is the program describing Jews who lived in Egypt pre-48. And that means that you have at least a presentation of normal Jews. And Israel and Egypt have now become closer than ever before. And by the way, if you look at the Egyptian blockade of the Gaza Strip, it's more intense than the Israeli blockade of the Gaza Strip. And if you also look at the fact that what's happening in the Sinai, you see that Egypt and Israel now have a significant military alliance. Israel is also doing something quite brilliantly, which, by the way, in California, we have to avail ourselves of Israeli technology. And I had meetings when I was in Israel. My brother-in-law is the, is the former chief scientist of the EPA of Israel. And we had meetings with a number of people about what Israel can contribute to California. It's brought desalinization down to a handleable commodity. 
it's developed into, into a place that's going to provide water for Jordan and the Palestinians. And if it's going to provide water for the Jordan and the Palestinians, that means that war you can't do without water. And the water delivery infrastructure becomes essential and that wipes the possibility of war off for a while. And their drip irrigation, which my brother-in-law was one of the creators of, is one of our solutions in California to the way in which our agricultural community and productivity are doing it. So Israel can contribute dramatically to California. And I told my brother-in-law as we were meeting that I would come forth with a grand proposal for California to make use, license the whole range of Israeli technology. And if it can cut water consumption, and think of what that means for California, think of what that means for Arizona, think of what that means for Colorado, think of what that means for uh, Nevada. And if you begin to talk about four states that have then been rescued from enormous drought by Israel, unless our crazy weather changes radically soon, then you're talking about a different model. So the good news is that you have a little bit of a strategic change. The good news also with that is that, um, that with the strategic change, if Israel is smart, and that may be an if, if Israel is smart, it should be able to get political benefits from strategic alliances. But to do that, it's got to resolve that it wants to do something like that. One piece of bad news, and with this I'll conclude, and I've said enough to invite questions, challenges, criticisms, and I welcome that. We're about to have a, an interesting crisis in the American Jewish community. The crisis in the American Jewish community is we are now essentially have an institutional battle against the President of the United States and his administration. If we win it, there will be a, um, and I'm not sure what winning is, if the vetoing of, uh, if the agreement with Iran is not approved by Congress, we will have a very serious manifestation of the triumph of Jewish power that will reinforce the idea that Jews control America. And that will also put lots of people alienated from America and from the American Jewish community. If um, we do not, if the American Jewish community does not prevail in its opposition to this, then something very interesting is going to happen. Number one, we may have seen Jewish power or the perception of Jewish power experience itself at its peak. And the bubble will burst. The second thing is that, um, that uh, we may also then have retribution within the American Jewish community because the reality is that we are divided, pro the agreement, against the agreement, pro-Israeli settlements against settlements, pro this, pro that, pro two-state solution against two-state solution. And we may begin to reflect the polarization that we see between Democrats and Republicans in Washington and between Israeli segments of the Israeli population in Israel itself. And the high time of collaboration and mutual respect 
within the American Jewish community may come to pass. And the other thing we may have, which is also has real implications, is we may have a considerable distance develop between Jewish organizational life and where Jews are. And we may have a gap that will become significant because the reality is that I suspect the Jewish community is not being reflected in its organizational life in fighting the battle. But it will be interesting to see where we are right after the High Holy Days. And there are scenarios that are problematic and we will be reinforcing certain types of anti-Semitic stereotypes. Uh, and we will be a far more divided community, no matter what happens. And that's not even looking forward to the impact of it. No matter what happens, we'll be a far more divided community after these 60 days than we are right now. Okay, let's take questions. Thank you very much. Please. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about the divestment um, movement that's going on in the universities? You know, like even UCLA. And yeah. Can you repeat? Yeah. Can Can I speak about divestment? Yes. Um, boycott, divestment, sanctions is adopting the tactics that was used to that was used to combat apartheid to South Africa with regard to that. Uh, a divestment is not going anywhere. Divestment will fail. The students may make noise, even certain places the faculty may make noise. The board of directors of, and the board of trustees of universities, even UCLA, not going in that direction. In fact, the reality is the opposite, which is that um, we used to have a wonderful joke. How do you make a small fortune in Israel? You come with a large fortune. The reality is that Three years ago, Warren Buffett at, um, at his annual meeting of Berkshire Hathaway, which is what Woodstock for capitalists, <laughs> said, and I quote, he said, um, I have never appreciated more any business investment than I made than the investment that I made in Israel. The sense of human capital that is available to me now is unprecedented. They are opening doors throughout Europe, and they have been a privilege to work with. Every investment scribe was writing down all of this, and Israel's economy is thriving, and Israel seems to be a society that can develop uh, corporations that then get bought out for a half a billion dollars, a billion dollars, they don't seem to be developed, able to develop 10 billion, 20 billion, 30 billion dollars because essentially they don't have domestic product, a domestic market for that, but their startups are incredible. I don't know how many of you use Waze, yes. but I use Waze all over the world. I use Waze all over the world. I no longer have to take Waze is, is, is a traffic app that has, been bought, that has been bought by Google that was developed by four guys in the garage, sold for about half a billion dollars, that gives you constant interaction 
in a community, so not only do you know how to get someplace, but you know what the shortest way to go to get someplace, and you even and and you even know exactly what time you're going to arrive, and you arrive within a minute of the time that it tells you you're going to arrive. It factors in every type of traffic jam, every type of thing. If you don't have ways, you should get it. It's free. And it's one of these things in which every driver then becomes a broadcaster of what the traffic condition is. And the other thing about it, which I know from my travels, it works all over the world. And in fact, you're talking to somebody, uh, I'll tell you a personal story, I broke ways. <laughs> which is, I was traveling from uh, Warsaw to Vilnius, they took me to a place, I came to a border. Now, there is no longer a border between Lithuania and uh, Poland. So when I came to the border, I, sent, uh, I asked the person, I'm going to ask you a very dumb question, where am I? <laughs> so he said, you're in Belarus, but we won't let you in because you're an American, you need a visa. So I had to go back 120 kilometers to go to another road to get to the main road to Vilnius. I rode to Waze. They said, thank you, because we now will show you what visas you need. And they sent me a check for $250 for, for my trouble in having to drive. But what, what's, what's the point? Divestment is not going to happen. Because uh, A, the, the second part of divestment is there's the reality of Jewish power. And the reality of Jewish power is that you have enough Jews contributing to enough universities that nobody is going to alienate them and alienate their potential for giving and do it so it's not going to happen. Now, what is going to happen is a lot of noise and what's going to happen is that, and it happened at UCLA, which is that all of a sudden the language around this becomes a language that leads to overt anti-Semitism. So a kid who is an identifiable kid who's gone to Israel which means my kids who've been to Israel 10 times and are now 16 or 17, means that if they come up, they're going to be told, you know, how can you be this? You've been to, you've been to Israel, which then essentially says, how can it be this? You've been an active Jew. If you've gone on birthright, you've gone on a sponsored trip. If you've gone on USY or, or NIFTY, you've gone on a trip that has, you know, a certain range of subsidies. It's, boy, it, it's, it's bordering on anti-Semitism, but it's not going anywhere. And the reality is that it's going to create noise, and we have to watch it, but it's not going to succeed. Not at, in the conceivable future as we see it. Yes, sir, you had your hand up. I find it strange. You said that uh, France uh, declared that Jews are ours. Do you mean to tell me that I have to kill Jews? Jews have to be killed in order for a government to say, you are ours? This is like saying the Holocaust was, is justified so that Merkel or Adenauer would say, we love Jews. Excuse me. Uh, let's, let's begin by saying it is unfortunate that it wasn't said earlier and louder. But essentially what I also said is, remember, if you accept the values of France, quotation marks, the values of liberty, equality, and fraternity, if you accept that, then you accept the fact that Jews are a natural part of France. 
I know a little bit about the Holocaust, so let me say one thing about the Holocaust. What we discovered in the Holocaust was that most of the nations of Europe were willing to regard the Jews as alien. And consequently, the statement by the leadership, and what makes this different from the Holocaust, the fact that the leadership of a European country can say, you can't do that, they're ours, is a significant achievement. If it happens in the aftermath of death, better it should have been said before than after, but better that it's said. In the same way that the governor of South Carolina needed the murder of nine people to take down the Confederate flag. And that's a victory of what? Tolerance, pluralism, and non-hatred. Now, do we need the death of nine people to understand that the flag represents hatred to African Americans? That slavery was an abomination? But better that she did what she did than that she responded to it by defending what? Our, our southern heritage. So I, I, don't accept, I don't accept that. Certainly it should have been said before. And let's take, a, let's take an example in Merkel. The most significantly increasing Jews in Europe, the Jewish community that's growing the largest now in Europe, the growing the fastest is Germany. Why? Because Germany is importing Jews because they're white and they're excluding people who are Muslims, Turks, and the like. Spain is welcoming back its Jews and I just came back from a week and a half in Poland. Poland's synagogues have less security than this. The doors are open, nobody's watching, no police whatsoever, no sense of anti-Semitism, wide open. The Israelis don't believe it. These are societies that are treating their Jews differently. Yes, sir, in the back. Um, Thank you. Dr. Uh, could you please elaborate on the last but basically two sentences of your presentation. If Republicans don't pass the agreement with Iran, they'll be seen as a manifestation of Jewish power. And also, and then you went on to how there's going to be greater uh, split within the, the Jewish community. Could you elaborate? I, I, first of all, Republicans are not going to pass it. What you have, uh, I didn't say the statement from Republicans do not pass. Essentially what you're going to have is you're going to have a, essentially a no vote take place. In all likelihood the no vote will be a majority no vote, but there will not be enough votes to over, overcome the presidential veto. So it's, it's, not, it's not clear. That is clearly going to be a manifestation of Jewish power. And it's going to be a manifestation of Jewish power because Jews have made it a manifestation of Jewish power. APEC has geared up a $20 million campaign. The Prime Minister of Israel spoke to the Congress of the United States. There's a question and there's a division in Israel now as to how far do you push and how far do you go. And that's clearly going to be regarded as a manifestation of Jewish power. If the vote ultimately overturns it, there will be other consequences, but it's clearly a manifestation of Jewish power. And we shouldn't be ashamed of it being a manifestation of Jewish power. No matter which way we feel, Jews are entitled to power, and power is, is, is legitimate. We're in a new situation. We're not a powerless people. 
So uh, essentially, that's going to be it. Now, what's the other half of the, what's the other half of the statement that I made, sir? Yeah, there's going to be a, there's going to be a polarity there's going to be a polarity in the American Jewish community. Polarity in the American Jewish community is going to be between you you see the you see the the um, first of all you see a little bit of a division within Israel emerging now as well, which is that the retired security establishment is saying we're going overboard with this. This morning, Ehud Barak said, "I'm not going to criticize the Prime Minister, but." Then went on and criticized the prime minister <laughs> in, in, in doing in doing that. You also will have a greater division as Jews will turn against Jews and accuse uh, people who don't go for the uh, who, who who don't um, seek to overturn the, the treaty of traitorous behavior and a whole range of things. And you're also going to have a real division, and you already have a polarization between Republicans and Democrats, between two state and one state, and, and, and all of this. Uh, so I see a greater polarization of the American Jewish community. I hope we can avoid it, and I hope that civilized discussion can also avoid it. Let's go right there. Uh, then what I do with that is I have a very uh, unusual thing, which is I'm going to have everybody ask the question, and then I will give one answer. So let's let's see how many questions are up. I see it, we're going to take all the questions. Let's go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We'll then give one answer. So let's go questions quickly. Somebody have a did somebody have a pen? Okay. With regard to the split on the Iran deal. Um, do you think that um, of those Jews who don't support the Iran deal, that is intimately connected with their feelings regarding our current president? Okay, next question. Can you talk about the effect of organizations like Students for the Justice of Palestine on the college campus? What effect that will have anti-Semitism in the upcoming generation? Okay, next. Okay, mine's actually more of a comment with the Jews in France. From what I understand, there's two things going on. One is that a lot of from France, French are moving to, to yeah. Jews are moving to Israel. They, of course, want their parents and grandparents' um, bodies taken, reburied in Israel. Part of it is that that there is halakhically in the Bible there is something about you know we should all be buried in Israel even if we live here. And the other thing with their children moving there, they really want it to be that they can then visit their graves and give them a So I think you know that's part of the problem, the issue of France. Okay. Yes, sir. Getting back to the question of anti-Semitism in Europe, you distinguish between anti-Semitism in and anti-Semitism of. How do you deal with the overflow of the anti-Semitism from the minorities, the Arab minorities, overflowing and eventually taking over the Arab French society or German society or the German society? Robert. What's your take on the Iran agreement? On the news, it says that Obama does not need a congressional agreement because he's not calling it a treaty. That's Is that right. correct? That's right. He's calling it a deal, yeah, that's right. not a treaty, okay. and therefore he doesn't need Congress's approval. Let's go. Um, your question, your last. Okay, I'm sorry, sir. Let's take that and then you. Come today to speak about the changing face of anti-Semitism. 
does the changing face of anti-Semitism also change the way we should try to respond to and address anti-Semitism um, to counter it as Jews? Did I slip money to you? <laughs> how, how does your position in the, in the Iran Treaty differ from Jay Street? Okay. Let's, let's, um, let me separate out to the very end I Iran, okay? Let's, let's separate it out. Number one, uh, does the split reflect the feelings of the president? There is a, um, we have to distinguish two feelings, two feelings toward the president. There are segments of the American people that don't accept the president because he's uh, of a certain color. And he's also not only of a certain color, but um, he is. What? No, I, I, I think I, if you give me an hour, I, if you give me an hour, I think I can prove, uh, prove it demographically. I can prove it. I can prove it with. I can prove it with information. I think that's less. I think that's less within the American Jewish community. Uh, I think that one has to say that Obama made several mistakes in reaching out to the Jews. I do not believe the president is an anti-Semite. It would be very unusual behavior for a president who is an anti-Semite to have a Hebrew-speaking um, Jew of Israeli birth as his, uh, of, of Israeli origin as his chief of staff and to have an Orthodox Jew of his chief of staff, then his secretary of treasury, to host with his kids satyrs in the White House. That's different, for example, than his feeling toward Israel and his feeling toward Bibi Netanyahu. Uh, and I think that it's clear that his feeling toward Bibi Netanyahu is a mutual sense of disdain. And I think that it's one that has been earned in one sense on both sides. President's mistake probably, and here's where I dis differ with Michael Oren, any president of the United States in 2009 would have had an outreach to the Muslim world. After what we went through between 2001 and 2009, any president coming in would have had an outreach to the Muslim world. He probably should have gone to Israel after going to Egypt. Instead, he went to Buchenwald, accompanied ironically by Elie Wiesel and accompanied by the Chancellor of Germany and the President of Germany. But he went to Buchenwald, which was to see stuff through the lens of the Holocaust instead of talking to the Israeli people. He went to Israel too late. President sees the Middle East um, in, and the President, look, I have a long piece that I wrote about Jeffrey Goldberg's um, um, interview with President Obama on um, anti-Semitism and on the Middle East, in which I criticized the President deeply for the following reason. And I said, essentially, that the President said, when there is a clash between hatreds and self-interest, nations act with self with, for self-interest. I said, there's no historical evidence for that. I said, both on a personal and on national level, and I can prove it with the Holocaust, I can show you the whole range of issues that Adolf Hitler and the Nazis moved against their self-interest in winning the war and in protecting Germany in order to get on with their destruction of the Jews. There are entire books on that. I can spend an hour and give you lecture after lecture after lecture. So it told me the president doesn't understand evil. It tells me something else, which is the president was telling me something personal 
about that when he feels that he has to act out of anger or he has to act out of self-interest, he restrains his act anger and acts out of self-interest. But he shouldn't expect that behavior from somebody else. People who hate very often act against their self-interest. Some of you know people who have been divorced, who have done all sorts of things uh, against every conceivable sense of self-interest because they hated the other more than they even loved their children. And that's a manifestation we see not only in nations, uh, and, but, uh, but uh, elsewhere. Let me uh, disagree for one moment. Um, there's an interesting thing. Jews started moving to Israel uh, right after the attack on Super Kasher. That slowed down dramatically. And um, there is not the expectation of the massive immigration from France that there was immediately thereafter. What Jews are doing with France is, especially comfortable Jews, is they're developing second homes. And I would also imagine that they are also uh, migrating some of their resources. So that if you go into the market, you see a lot of areas which have French people and French-speaking people where apartment housing and apartment prices have gone up because there are a lot of second homes. Students for Justice, the problem with Students for Justice is that you have people who uh, are acting against Israel who put a Jewish face on it. Therefore, you say they can't be anti-Semitic because they're Jewish. And um, that becomes a polarization uh, that becomes a polarization that takes uh, place significantly. The answer to you, and I, I, I'm happy that I paid you in advance to ask that question. <laughs> I'm going to say it very simply. The people who fight the last war lose the next war. Let me repeat that. The people who fight the last war lose the next war. If I have something to say to the Jewish community, I want to tell you this is not 1933. It's not 1938. It's not 1942. It is 2015. And if we begin to see this through the lens of the Holocaust, we misread the whole thing. And therefore, we don't equip ourselves to deal with what we're facing today. Secondly. We have to see the hatred that is directed on us, not only within the context of hatred against the Jews, but within the manifestation of hatred within society itself. And if we don't see that, we're misperceiving it and we're misreading the extent to which we are the center of that drama. There is no doubt, for example, in Europe in 1933 onward, the Jews were the center of the drama of hatred. We are not the center of the drama of the hatred here. Look at what Donald Trump said about immigrants. Right? Look what Donald Trump said, against, said about immigrants. Now, I, I'm not going to go into whether he was right or wrong about immigrants, but Jews don't factor into that. Look at the range of, of, of angers that are taking place in our society and tell me that Jews are a central part. We're in different perspective. Understand that even the attacks in France were attacks against uh, the publication and the Jews. 
And consequently, you have to understand that it was attack against a phenomena of westernization and western values, and not only the Jews, even though it was centered on the Jews. So we have to be prepared to deal with that tactically. I am not, have never been a member of J Street. I have differing uh, views on that. Let me go to the Iran issue very simply. Um, and I, 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 I say this um, as somebody who came back from Israel um, uh, last week. I've been in, in five countries in the last four weeks, and I can't even remember where the hell I came from <laughs> to begin with. And I, I had this on my calendar, and I knew I would be in Los Angeles uh, for, for in Los Angeles, in Orange County, for this date. Um, I essentially see the Iran deal as the follow, following. We have one unanswered question. The question is how insane the Iranian government and the Iranian people are. Israel has the capacity to annihilate Iran. When Iran announced its first nuclear attention, Israel bought two German nuclear submarines, if you want to talk about an, iron, an irony in history. Israel clearly has the bomb. Israel clearly has the system of retaliation. And any government of Iran that decided to attack Israel would have to figure on the following. Number one, that there would be a swift and immediate response, and they'd be speaking of mutual assured destruction. Number two, that the sacred sites that are quotation marks holy to Islam would be uninhabitable for a generation. Three, that the Palestinians would be killed as well, which should exercise a certain measure of restraint. I am not worried as much of Iran as I am worried about non-state actors getting a hold of the bomb. Now, I believe, and I do this on the basis not of my knowledge, and I'm used to speaking on the basis of what I know, but I uh, have a close relative who is a nuclear scientist who says that um, he somehow sometimes hopes that non-state actors get the nuclear bomb because they won't be able to handle it. And meaning that, meaning that they'll contaminate, they'll contaminate the, the, he said the, the nature of how explosive and how difficult that is to handle. I was far more confident of this negotiation when we had the Secretary of Energy, who's an MIT professor of nuclear physics, as part of the discussion. I have hesitation because the president doesn't understand evil fully and presumes rationality on the other part. I think that the Israelis have been underestimating their own capacities. And I think the Prime Minister of Israel has been, was dead wrong to appear before the Congress of the United States and to declare a battle against the President of the United States. On the whole, this is not the best agreement. It's not the worst agreement. It should constrain things for a decade. What happens after a decade, nobody knows. But without, let's assume for a moment that the agreement fails. The United States then is isolated, because the world has gone along with this. Iran then is two months away from a nuclear bomb. Sanctions are off except for American sanctions. 
the president is president of the United States for 14 or 15 more months, but he's impotent and humiliated. And there is the perception that Israel controls the American Congress. To my mind, that is not a very good situation for America. It's not a very good situation for Jews. And consequently, I am mildly in favor of the agreement. I do not believe, and let me conclude with this because I'm out with a piece today on an op-ed on that. Let me uh, say it very simply. Um, Geneva is not Munich. And Obama is not Neville Chamberlain. I was pleased with the press conference the president gave because he had limited expectations. And the most important thing he said in that press conference with limited expectations was that we are going to continue to oppose things that Iran does, but that's without it having a nuclear capacity. And uh, if you ask me what I'd like to see happen, I'd like to see two things happen. I'd like to see, and, and this is not happening, and, and the Prime Minister has probably made a very serious mistake yesterday, which is that the Secretary of Defense was over in Israel to offer Israel a whole range of compensations on this, and he said, we'll discuss that later. The reality is you discuss it now because you get more now than you'll get later. If you ask me what I'd like to see happen, I'd like to see an agreement forged between Israel and the United States which says essentially that an attack against Israel by those types of means is an attack against the United States and will be met with the full force of such an attack, which is a mutual security treaty between Israel and the United States. I also think something else, which is that alliances, and this is, a, this is a dilemma, and we may overplay our hand on this. Countries have ongoing, stable national interests. They have unstable alliances, which can change. If Israel makes itself fully a nuisance, to the President of the United States, and if we were to get a democratic um, successor to the President of the United States, con contemporary President of the United States, they're going to have to absorb some of that. And remember, Bibi bet on a Republican President in 2012 and lost. The American Jewish community voted 66% against the Prime Minister of Israel. And uh, if you continue to have the rhetoric coming out of the Donald Trump era, and that continues to resonate in the population. I think the vote of Jews for the Democratic candidate, if that continues, would be in the neighborhood of not 66%, 63%, 62%, because I think the rest of that rhetoric does not resonate and alienates. So I think this is a time for a mutual treaty between the two. And again, I think verification, this is trust but verify. This is not trust but verify. And this also is based on the idea that we have the power for mutual assured destruction, which says that the other side has to be lunatics in order to engage in a battle. Israel is now more powerful than it's ever been. It's more regionally powerful. 
And people don't understand how we can be Goliath and still presume ourselves to be victims. Thank you. <laughs>